0: Welcome to Done With Debauchery, a sobriety and wellness podcast where you'll hear honest experiences about navigating life and relationships without alcohol, how to pursue your own personal wellness journey, and share intimate conversations with special guests. I'm your host, Keisha Scott. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Done with Debauchery. This week, I want to give a shout out to one of my listeners. It's such an interesting story. I was so excited when I first found out about this person. So, if you've been listening for a while, you know that recently I've done a couple episodes with Nadine from the Sober Butterfly podcast. Well, she recently went on a trip to Panama just for fun. Um, She went down for the weekend because she is a jet setter. And while she was down there, she connected with a listener from both of our podcasts. His name is Jesus. I just want to say hello, Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. It's honestly so incredible to me that this podcast has reached you and is reaching people across the world. So thank you so much for holding it down for our sober crew in Panama, and I wish you all the best with your sobriety journey. Before we get to the conversation that I have with my very special guest this week, I do want to share a few things with you. This past weekend, I was invited and went to a sober girls brunch. It was with some of the girls who had come to the sober Halloween party that I hosted, And it was just so nice to reconnect with them, get to know them a little bit better on a more smaller scale. So it was a little bit more intimate, Um, more personal conversations were had, at least on my part. Um, I definitely shared a lot about my life, my experiences. I cried twice, which is not unusual if you know me. Um, I can be very emotional. But There was just something so nice about being able to share openly with this group of women and just having no fear of judgment. Like there, I felt no insecurity. I felt no shame about the things that I was talking about. It just truly felt like a safe space. And I thought it was really important to share that because Up until very recently, I haven't had any sober friends. All of my friends drink, and that's not to say that I don't have great friendships and strong relationships with them, because I do, but it was just a different level of connection, I think. I don't know. It was just something different knowing that these women can relate to me in a way that some of my other friends maybe are not able to and it really solidified for me the importance of having of having sober connections and sober friends so kind of on the heels of that i have decided to do a sober girls holiday party it's going to be downtown toronto it's going to be a chance for sober girls to come and make new sober friends So if you're listening to this, you're sober or sober curious in Toronto and you're interested in coming, send me a DM on Instagram. My account is at donewithdebauchery and it'll be for mid-December and I'm just getting all the details in order now and should be sending out an invite likely over the weekend. So if you're listening, send me a DM. We'd love to have you. It's already looking like it's going to be a really good group of women. So I'm very excited. Next week is my birthday week, so I'm sort of taking the week off from the podcast, but I didn't want to leave you hanging, so you will be getting an episode. It'll be a re-release of the episode that I did with Nadine from the Sober Butterfly podcast. We released it on her channel a few weeks ago, and it's discussing three taboo or controversial topics in sobriety. So you'll get that in your feed on my show next week. And then the following Wednesday, I'll be back with a solo episode talking all things sober birthday. This is going to be my first birthday since getting sober from alcohol. My childhood best friend is coming to Toronto and we have so many fun activities planned. So I can't wait to share all of that with you. This week, my special guest is Amy C. Willis. Amy is six years sober after a 15-year struggle with alcohol addiction. Since getting sober, she's educated herself on addiction and substance use issues to better understand what actually happens in our brains when we drink alcohol. Now she works as a sobriety and mindset coach based in Toronto and uses her knowledge to help her clients recover. In this episode, we talk about some really important topics, primarily why alcohol is a feminist issue and why women are being so heavily targeted by big alcohol companies in order to get us to drink more. Amy brought the facts, she brought the stats, she brought it all, so let's get into it.
1: Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Me too. I've been really excited about our chat like in the week leading up to it. Um, But before we get into all the things, can you start off by
1: telling us a little about yourself? Who are you? Where are you? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So my name is Amy C. Willis. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a sobriety and mindset coach who supports women and queer folks in reclaiming their power and freedom through sobriety and ultimately building alcohol-free lives that they don't want to escape from. And I come to this work after struggling with a pretty severe alcohol addiction myself for more than 15 years. I also grew up in a home where my dad struggled with alcohol addiction, and that ended his life uh, quite early. And so it was, you know, um, a significant part of my upbringing and really formative for me. Um, So in addition to being a coach, I am also a meditation teacher, I'm an EFT practitioner, and those are tools that I bring to my coaching practice. Um, I am queer, I've been sober for more than six years, and I work and live out of Toronto, Canada.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I definitely want to get into the sobriety and mindset coaching because this is a topic that I am so interested in. But Mm -hmm. before that, let's back up a little bit. Um, And if you feel comfortable sharing your sobriety story, How did your drinking begin? What led you to choose the path of sobriety?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think like a lot of folks, I started drinking in my teens. I was about 16 when I started drinking. And initially, it was very much a social... You know, I did it at parties. It was very experimental. My peers were doing it. My friends were doing it. And it was just kind of in the environment. And so I was curious. I'm a very curious person. And, um, yeah, so that's sort of how it started. And at the same time in my life, my parents were going through a very messy, very tumultuous separation. So what was happening in my home life was, Really stressful, really traumatic, and nothing that I had any control over. And I also didn't have any coping skills. I didn't have any outlets to process what was happening. And when I found alcohol, it presented itself as a little bit of an off switch for everything else that was going on for me emotionally, because I really couldn't get away from it. It was, you know, long and drawn out and just a really terrible time. And so alcohol really gave me a little bit of relief from what was happening around me. And so that's sort of how it started. And it, you know, very quickly progressed to drinking alone in my bedroom and hiding alcohol, you know, within a year or so of starting, of starting to drink, um, And, you know, it, it became something over the years that I really integrated into almost all aspects of my life. It, it got to a point where it was, you know, I, I went to yoga festivals, which when you think of a yoga festival, you might think serene and calm and, Mm -hmm. you know, present and, and meditative and all of that. And I was drunk the entire time and, um, So it really became integrated into so many different facets of my life to the point where I couldn't even conceptualize what life without alcohol would look like. I assumed I would never have fun again. I assumed I would never connect with people again. It felt like my life would be over. That's Um, so common. It is so common. And also so, I mean, now that I'm on the other side of it, so ironic because a life without alcohol messing things up, in my experience, has created, it feels like it's opened all the doors and created all the possibilities for yeah. anything I could ever imagine. So it's it's interesting how in the time it really kind of clouded my perspective and clouded my judgment on what life could look like without it. Mm-hmm. So um So yeah, I was, uh, I was just kind of moving along and drinking more and more. And one of the really, I would say pivotal moments in my relationship to drinking was when my dad suddenly passed away. And that was in 2014. And he had a, a really problematic relationship with alcohol and, and he drank himself to death. And so Obviously that was very upsetting. I, it was the first time I had really dealt with death in, you know, my, anybody really close to me in my life and a parent at that. And he died doing the thing that I was doing as well. And so. Um, my drinking and my addiction got a lot worse after that because I still didn't have any coping skills. I still didn't know how to process big feelings or, you know, big emotional events that were happening in my life. And so I drank about it and and I did that for another year or so, um, drank heavily. and about a year after he had passed, so most of the acute grief had passed. Um, and I started, and, you know, honestly, I can't even really pinpoint it, but these questions started popping into my head. And the question was, is this it? Like, mm-hmm. is this, is this all there is for me in my life? And by it, I mean, drinking my face off, being hung over, wasting a bunch of time, feeling terrible, planning when I'm going to drink next being consumed with thoughts of it and, you know, just being in that cycle over and over and over. And I was like, this can't be it. Like this. There has to be more. There has to be more because, you know, it was starting to feel really terrible. It was a really terrible cycle. And I literally just witnessed what happened to my dad. And he was in that cycle for a long time. And I I knew that I didn't want to die and I didn't want to shorten my life and I didn't really know what else to do with that, but it was at that time. So that would have been sometime in 2015 that those questions started to cycle through my head and I started to actually ask other questions like, is this thing serving me? Is this this actually working for me? What could it be like to not have alcohol in my life? And so I had little pockets of time. And I mean, very little, like a few days without drinking um, here and there. And I wouldn't say I was sober curious. I wouldn't say really anything. I don't know if I was doing a lot with intention, but I was just kind of crawling towards what if, what if it could be different? And I didn't know what different looked like. I didn't know how to get there, but I was like, what I'm doing is not working for me. And I don't know how to change it. And I don't know what I want on the other side, but this is not working. Mm -hmm. And so after about a year of that, I arrived at a place where I had gone to um, like a work related party the night before. And I woke up hungover. There was nothing unusual about that. Um, I felt very indifferent about whether or not I wanted to live. That was also not unusual. And that day I was like, I can't keep doing this. So I decided in that moment that I was going to quit drinking for six months because I could not fathom the idea of quitting forever. Like it felt like way too much, but I was like, I can, I I don't know how, but I'm going to go for six months and I'm going to see what happens. And by the time that six month Mark arrived, I was terrified at the thought of drinking again, because I knew that I would end up back where I started, and it would probably just be back in that cycle, and I would get more of what I didn't want. And at that six-month mark, I decided that I wasn't going to drink anymore. And so as of August 2016, I have not had a drink. Congratulations.
0: (laughs) Thanks. That is such a beautiful story. And I'm so sorry about your dad and you having to see that not only growing up but then to lose him in that way. Mm-hmm. Um I think that it's so interesting that when we lose someone to an addiction, like I personally have lost someone very close to me as well to their addiction, mm-hmm. and in the period following when you're in, at least this was the case for me, but like when you're in mm-hmm. that immediate grief, you think in your head I should be doing the polar opposite. Like I should get as far away from this as possible. But in that period, right after you just go deeper into the hurt, essentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm sorry about your, the person you lost as well. It's really hard.
0: It's really hard. Um, And then what you said about Like, I think setting like those little goals, getting those small number of days together is such an Mm -hmm. important part of the process because that thought of forever is so scary to Mm -hmm. so many people and me going like, not to bring it back to me again, but like going through that, like thinking of that forever, even today is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So to think, okay, I'm going to set a goal for six months. Once you achieve that, it's like, you're building up that trust in yourself again that like, Mm -hmm. okay, like I actually can do this. And you're seeing what that more that you talked about earlier can look like.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I I couldn't agree with you more like on the piece about, you know, just setting smaller goals like. And then actually give yourself and your body an opportunity to have a break, give your mind the opportunity to get a bit of clarity and actually see how you feel. And then decide if you want to make it a longer goal or if you want to, you know, whatever it is. But, um, Yeah. um, I I like what you said about building trust. I think that that's so important because I don't know about you, but in my drinking days, I had zero trust in myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't trust my capacity to follow through on things. I didn't trust my capacity to manage challenging situations as they arose. And in sobriety, I've really built up that trust. And I've also created so much evidence for myself of what I can do when I Mm -hmm. really decide to do it. And it sounds like you have too. And that's really great.
0: Definitely. And I'm definitely still working on it. Like it feels like a Mm. lifelong journey, but yeah, that period right before getting sober, especially I think with trying to moderate your drinking, it's just like constantly like a personal letdown and like you just beat yourself up emotionally. So When did that kind of mindset switch for you? Like, was it once you got to that six-month mark? Like, you reached that goal and you're like, okay, I did this and I can continue to do this?
1: Honestly, I continuing on at the six-month mark was, I think, less about the confidence and the trust and more about the fear Mm. of going back to what it was and how terrible it was for me. So I think that that, for me, that was my experience. And that's not to say it would be anybody else's, but um, I think probably closer to me, to my year mark was when I started to think differently about it and feel, feel more confident and sort of, you know, I'm thinking of like, A balance or a seesaw. And it became more about the confidence and the trust and less about the fear because now it was not on the table that alcohol would be something I would welcome into my life later on. And so I could really look back and say, holy crap, like I just did a year of a really hard thing. And now I know that I can do all kinds of other hard things. So I would say that that was when it started to sort of mentally shift for me in, in terms of the mindset piece.
0: Wow. And so now you work in the recovery Mm -hmm. space as a sobriety and mindset coach. Did that just feel like a natural transition or what were you doing before?
1: I have so many questions. Yeah. Yeah. So a few things. So I'm an Aquarius So that feels like relevant to what I'm about to say next, which is I've always had a very deep, innate desire to support people and to help people. Um, And so when I started talking about my own experiences with getting sober, which I didn't do publicly for probably up until I think the first time I talked about it publicly was at the year mark for me because I was just, I was scared. I carried a lot of shame. I didn't want to quote unquote fail. Um, And so when I started talking about it, then I was very surprised at the number of women who privately reached out to me and said, maybe me too. Or like I've had a similar experience or it's in my life and I don't want it to be. And I don't quite know how to get rid of it. I struggle with it. It's not working for me. It's not in service to me. And yet it's still in my life. And sorry, were and, these women like in your personal network, like friends, acquaintances, people you um, knew kind of a mixture and it was like okay. mostly through Instagram so some some people i knew um through various whatever like friend groups sure. professional connections random women that i never had spoken to i don't know who they okay. are you know so it was kind of a mixed bag um and it was probably close to 25 people so i knew that i wasn't the only one dealing with this and i knew that i wasn't the only one who maybe had a relationship with alcohol that they didn't really want to be having but didn't know how to make it different mm-hmm. Um, so, so there was that piece and then coupled with how profound getting sober was in my life. I mean, it saved my life. It changed everything about my life. I now have this life that I've built that I'm madly in love with. And the foundation of that life is my sobriety. Mm -hmm. And then adding on the fact that I, love supporting people. And I love supporting people in having the exact life that they want to have. And so I felt very called to provide some kind of care and some kind of support for other women who wanted to enter and sustain sobriety and have these awesome lives. And so I decided to get coaching training. Um, So I did that. And then I added some additional modalities and trainings to that. And then I launched my coaching practice um, June, 2019. So it's just been over three years now. So that's sort of the journey to how I got here. And then in my prior life before coaching, (laughs) um, I was in... Global Health Research with a specialization in HIV prevention okay so that's wow a bit a bit
0: different <laughs> I did see an article about that I think something you wrote when I was Googling you like way back and I was like oh interesting from like one of the local universities here
1: yeah I mean I did my undergrad at U of T I okay. managed a research like an HIV research lab at wow. Ryerson and I did my grad work at York so I've kind of been around all mm-hmm. the universities Um, So that's what what I was doing prior to this. Um, So, yeah, I mean, when I think about all of it, I do see threads of similarities, um, but it is quite a departure from what I was doing before. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Definitely a big transition.
0: Um, And so sorry, just to backtrack a little bit. When you were getting sober, did you seek any kind of support outside of yourself? Did you work a program or what did that look like?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. So, um, even in, you know, since I got sober just over six years ago, um, I'm so pleased to say that the number of options and programs and communities have expanded so significantly. So there wasn't, nearly as much um in terms of options when i was getting sober i did try aa and it was not for me i just didn't see myself reflected in the program and it just didn't it just didn't work for me mm-hmm. um what i did do though was connect with and follow as many sober women on instagram as i could and that connection i found was really valuable for a couple of reasons. One, um, I felt less alone in my own experiences. Mm -hmm. And two, it felt really inspiring to see that there were other women on the other side of this, what felt like a mountain at the time, on the other side of this mountain, living lives that they seem to really love and enjoy. And so what I wouldn't have known at the time, but what I can see now is I was looking for community. I was looking to connect with other women who could understand what I was going through um, and you know, could provide guidance and insight and inspiration. Mm-hmm. So the community piece was really important. And then, you know, with my background in academia and research, I did what I often do when tackling a new topic, which is read as much as I can about it and acquire as much knowledge as possible on the thing that I'm trying to figure out. So I read sobriety memoirs and addiction memoirs. I also read as many books and, you know, academic journals on addiction and substance use issues as I possibly could. And I found that that was really, really helpful for me, just having that knowledge of understanding like what's actually happening in your brain when you're putting a substance like alcohol into it. Um, And so really sort of understanding the different theories of addiction was really helpful because I don't know where you land on this, but for me, the brain disease model of addiction, which we hear a lot about, even though it's like a theoretical model, um, never landed for me. Like I, I was very clear that I had, I very much had a problem with alcohol. It was not serving me. It was starting to negatively bleed into all kinds of areas of my life. Mm-hmm. But I never. I I never connected with the idea that I was I had a disease and that it was an incurable disease that I would be struggling with for the rest of my life. Um and so with that as well I was very motivated to find out like what other people what other neuroscientists thought about addiction and and to kind of piece together something that actually made more sense for me. And so that's a little bit about how I I got started in terms of my early sobriety. So I would say the community piece was really big. And then actually getting some information and building different habits in my life that were not supportive of drinking my face off every day. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah. I agree um, about the, like what you said about, um, the brain and like alcohol being a brain disease. I don't personally connect to that. Yeah. Um, I know that some people may. And yeah. I I always kind of come back to the difference between like a physical addiction and a psychological addiction. Does mm-hmm. that have any impact on if it's a brain disease or not? Like I don't I don't have that knowledge. I think y- you might be able to teach me a thing or two. But for me, I think I was more psychologically addicted. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and I don't identify with the term alcoholic. I think that I probably yeah. had an addiction to alcohol. And once I started mm-hmm. drinking, I couldn't stop. And like parts of my life were becoming unmanageable. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. But then for me, when I was getting sober, I did the same thing. I read a lot of Quitlet, the memoirs, and listened to podcasts and just hearing women share their stories and saying, like you said, like they're living these lives now of like what I can only hope. To be me someday, and like that yeah. joy that they feel being fully present, yeah, was something that felt like unimaginable at the time, Same. so I know that there are <laughs> I like totally yeah. like, yeah, and for me, it's been almost nine months and just looking back at how much has changed in that period. I can't even imagine six years and a different career, like,
1: yeah, yeah, it's wild when I think about, you know, where I was. Six and a half years ago, right? Like mm. my drinking was real bad. I thought my life would be over if I gave it up. I probably would have made fun of who I am now because I was mm. mean when I was drinking also. But... Me too. <laughs> yeah. Not not the best version of myself. Um, but yeah, I didn't even fully conceptualize what what would be possible. Um, by taking this thing out of my life and not in a way that it feels like a punishment or it's like a thing I can't have, but like, I'm going to not engage with this thing that mentally slows me down, that makes me feel depressed, that doesn't actually add anything to my life and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And this is what's happened. And it's pretty great. And congratulations on nine months. That's amazing. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much. Yeah. It feels exciting. And it feels so exciting that like the one year milestone is, is like within sight now. Yeah. Then I'm wondering, I'm like, what next? Then what milestone do I celebrate? Like a year and a half?
1: Like what happens after the first year? Whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah yeah it can be it can be on the month it can be every Mm -hmm. half year it can be the next year like whatever you want it can be every day it can be every day yeah
0: every day is like technically a new milestone of the longest I haven't drank alcohol for so yeah and I love that
1: I love that perspective yeah that's amazing congrats thank you
0: (laughs) thank you so much and so with the sobriety coaching, do you personalize the experience with each individual client?
1: Absolutely. So I, in my coaching practice, I have a program that I use with the understanding that every person who comes to me is unique in their experiences, in what's happening in their lives, in their you know particular challenges and struggles. And so I very much tailor it to the whole individual as they are right now and really meet my clients where they are at. And there are often things that I work on with every single one of my clients, mm-hmm. like, for example, boundaries right? That's something that I work on with every single client because it comes up with every single client. Um, and for me, boundaries are such a, uh, an important part of my sobriety and my recovery, right? Like being able to say no to somebody and not feel guilty about that Mm -hmm. and being able to recognize, you know, what works for you, what doesn't work for you like that, that is really vital in sobriety. And so, you know, that's something that I work on with everybody, things like self-sabotage, obviously identifying goals and communication and people pleasing and all of those kinds of things. Um, But it is very, very customized to the individual where they're at and also where they want to go, right? Because everybody has a different vision for their own future.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think that that is kind of what sets aside like these beautiful coaching practices from something like AA, where you walk in and it's a very kind of like structured, these are the principles, these are the things you have to do to be a part of it versus meeting with someone who's going to see, okay, like this is what my relationship with alcohol has been like. This is where I want to go. This is what I've been through and like tailor that experience. And I feel like that can just make it so much more enjoyable for the person going through it
1: absolutely and i think you know we kind of circling back to what i was saying earlier about options i'm mm-hmm. always going to advocate for options coaching is an option aa is an option mm. smart recovery tempest like whatever it is yeah. um because yeah there's lots of overlap in in our experiences and how alcohol functions in our bodies you know it's like the same and all of that kind of thing but we need we need to have we need all, our our full person to be seen and recognized like for example as um a queer woman my experiences are very different than that of a straight man and like aa for example was created as a program by two straight white middle to upper class men in 1935 mm-hmm. and it's not been updated that much since then. So like their lived experiences are very different than mine. And so, you know, when my clients come to me, I want, I want the whole person and I want to deal with all the intricacies that make them exactly who they are and how those intricacies interact with their relationship to alcohol.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about meeting them where they are. And just the fact that people can come to you as they are with no judgment. Yeah. Um, my question is, is there a criteria for the people that you're working with? Do they have to already be sober? Or is it just a desire to cut alcohol out of their lives? Or like, what's the prerequisite yeah. if there is one?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, So I do have like uh, an intake form that I offer to folks who are interested in working with me. Um, But I would say the only real prerequisite or requirement for working with me is willingness. So, you don't have to be quote unquote ready. You don't have to already be sober. You don't have to have a certain number of days or weeks or months of sobriety mm-hmm. under your belt. You just need to be willing to do something different to make your life look different and to change your relationship to alcohol.
0: That's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that. So, what's been the best part of working as a sobriety and mindset coach
1: oh man well I mean in case it isn't obvious I love my sober life it's been Mm -hmm. you know getting sober has been such a powerful uh choice that I made and and that I live into every single day So that, but then getting to do that, getting to support other women in taking their lives back and building lives that they are also madly in love with is the most rewarding and satisfying experience that I have ever had. So for example, um, my very first sober client Back in April of this year, Mm -hmm. she sent me a text the day before her three-year sober anniversary. Uh And she said, tomorrow is three years, which I know because I have it in my calendar. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But she's like, you gave my kids their mom back. You gave my husband his partner back. You gave my, my team, their person back. Like you changed my life and I will forever be grateful. And I I don't in any way want to make that about me because it's not about me. It's about her. And it's about the massive steps that she took and the work that she did day in and day out and the willingness and the choosing to show up even when it was hard, even when it was uncomfortable. And now looking at this beautiful life that she has built for herself, I feel a tremendous amount of honor and privilege and gratitude that I get or I got to walk beside her mm-hmm. while she was doing that work that's and it's beautiful. like those moments that I'm like this is the best this, this is, is the best it. that's it
0: wow yeah that is that is amazing well congratulations to her and the work that totally. you two did together like that's incredible yeah and so to pivot a little bit, um, obviously I was googling you before our chat, and I read an <laughs> article that you had writ, wrote, or wrote, sorry, earlier this year about why alcohol is a feminist issue, and you had five points on why. And I yeah. know that people who are reading the Quit Lit, this is something that Holly Whitaker talks about in her book Quit Like a Woman. Annie Grace talks about it. So I would love to have. conversation about that because it Mm -hmm. seems like you're quite passionate
1: (laughs) yeah I'm super passionate so obviously (laughs) in my experience as a woman and like as a feminist and working with um, women clients I am really attuned to The ways in which women are specifically targeted by marketing campaigns, by alcohol companies in an effort to get us to drink more. So Mm. taking it back a little bit, and I think that this is important to sort of remember, um, historically, women have been excluded from drinking spaces. So I'm thinking like pre-Prohibition era, Um, And so obviously that's shifted over time, but at a certain point, women were identified as an emerging market um, uh, and as a huge potential for sales growth by alcohol companies. And that is part of the reason why we are now so heavily targeted by alcohol companies and campaigns. And they use established feminized marketing strategies in an effort to essentially, I don't want to say trick us, but encourage, yeah, Yeah, persuade, influence um, us to drink more purely because it makes them more money. So some of the strategies that are used and I'll mention them. And I like to mention them by name because I want people to like recognize what they're seeing and when they see it, be able to say like, Hey, wait a second. What's actually what's going on here. Mm -hmm. So, um, the pinking or pink washing of alcoholic products and imagery. So that could literally be making something pink or that could be when um, an alcohol company sponsors like a breast cancer awareness event, even though we know that alcohol is uh, increases the risk of developing breast cancer, mm-hmm. right? So that really confuses the message for us because we're then at this event thinking, great, like alcohol or breast cancer awareness event, doing something great. This alcohol company's probably making a donation. Cool. Mm-hmm. They're supporting
0: us in this cause.
1: That's exactly right. As opposed to peddling a product that we have known for more than 30 years increases the likelihood of developing breast cancer right? So that's really confusing. Um, Alcohol companies also really sell the idea of that drinking promotes sisterhood, female friendships, connection, bonding. And we all need that as humans. We need connection. We need love. We need a sense of belonging. But I think what they've done is taken it a step further to suggest that those things are not only facilitated by alcohol, but can't happen in the absence of alcohol, mm-hmm. which also makes it very, because like we all want that. That's a human need. We all crave connection and belonging and love. And so then taking alcohol out of it, you think like those things might be threatened, which feels not appealing, right? Yeah. Um. Using, brands often use inauthentic, language, feminist language to sell the idea of empowerment to us, right? Um, They use inauthentic language around body positivity or body liberation. And they use diverse images, again, to sell the idea of empowerment or to sell the idea of inclusion. They use and this is really confusing. Both diet culture and anti-diet culture language. So they really attack from all sides. Okay. Um, and it's like they throwing really throwing mud
0: at the wall and seeing what sticks.
1: Exactly. Exactly, and there's so much money in marketing, and I can talk a little bit about that in one second. Sure, yeah. Um, but I'm sure you have seen, and this is like one of the sort of bigger kind of um, attacks on women, I would say. But mommy wine culture, mm-hmm. right? So messaging that really capitalizes on the busy mom situation, which is real and legitimate. Um. And playing up the me time idea or the self care idea. Um, Like, mommy has really earned this bottle of wine after a really hard day at work or a really hard week or whatever. And, you know, what moms actually need is structural change and support and care and paid time off and all of those things. And instead, we're like, here, drink this highly toxic, highly addictive substance that is not going to actually support you in anything that you need right now. But that's Mm -hmm. what we're given. Um, Yeah. So that's sort of a little bit about how feminized marketing strategies really target women. Um, And I know sometimes we like to think that we are immune to marketing messages and that we're all Smarter than them. And just for context, um, it is projected that in 2023, alcohol companies are going to be spending 7.7 7 billion dollars in advertising. Wow. 7.7 7 billion next year. And the only reason that alcohol companies would spend this amount of money is if their advertising efforts are generating revenue, right? Mm-hmm. And global alcohol sales, just to sort of bring it full circle, global alcohol sales for 2023 are expected to hit almost $350 billion. Wow. Which is like, <laughs> I don't even understand that many zeros. Yeah. Um So for context, right, it's like they're hitting us strategically. They're hitting us from all angles. They're putting all kinds of money behind these campaigns, all in an effort to really boost women's alcohol consumption and sales. And we know that women's drinking has been on the rise for years. So in Ontario, where we live, Mm -hmm. um, Between 2003 and 2016, we saw women's alcohol-related emergency room visits rise by 86%.
0: Sorry, between what what date range? 2003 and
1: 2016. So that was like pre-COVID, right? Oh my God. So we're seeing like women and, you know, um, across Canada – women's alcohol-related deaths from 2001 to 2017 increased by 26% versus men's, which increased by five. So what that's telling us is like women, like typically we've kind of trailed behind men in terms of how much we drink and the negative impacts on us. And that is that gap is really starting to close. So it's just it's concerning i think we need to be talking about it more i think we need to be naming what we're seeing and actually challenging it because it's a problem and like you know we we have been targeted and we continue to be targeted by what has ended up being really effective marketing and i also just want to say like there's for anyone who's hearing this and drinking still there is zero judgment in this like i yeah. understand why we do it i understand how we get there um there is we've been there lot. we've been there we've totally been there yeah. um and so you know there's no judgment there's no shame and the the criticisms and critiques i offer really are of big alcohol and alcohol mm-hmm. companies who are really trying to take advantage of women and you know the various vulnerabilities or reasons that we would need relief and coping and instead of actually getting that we're getting alcohol and that's really the crappy end of the stick you know
0: yeah. And I think that the the marketing can come in such sneaky ways as well. Yeah. Like it's not just the billboard on the side of the highway. It's on yeah. your favorite TV show or movie, how the women are connecting or let's say the successful woman on the office at the office. sorry, I try to like keep up with the men, like going drink for drink. It's in all these little subtle ways that I feel like I didn't even pick up on until I wasn't drinking anymore.
1: Same absolutely same. Um, And to your point, it's insidious, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that makes it so tricky is that it's become so normalized that we don't even question it anymore, right? When something is normal, it's like, cool, it's normal. We don't need to look at that. But Just because it's been normalized, it doesn't mean it's the right thing. It doesn't mean it's in our best interests. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that in hearing this, folks will maybe look at things a little bit differently and just notice, right? Notice what we're constantly taking in, in terms of messaging. Because you're right. It's in music. It's in books. It's in TV shows. It's the... um assumptions or the underlying messages and it's it's everywhere and uh it's it's doing a lot of harm which is why I talk about it right if yeah. if we didn't have increased er visits and increased deaths related to alcohol it wouldn't feel like such a big deal but it's serious you know there are really serious consequences
0: yeah li- lives are literally on the line and i think because it's so normalized that's what makes like women in our age range possibly have such a hard time connecting the dots that like, okay, like I might have a problem. This isn't actually what the normal should be or feel like.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Out of my immediate friend group, I'm the only one that has stopped drinking completely. Like over time, people are sort of swaying away from it a little less after they're more in touch with how it makes them feel as well. But the norm is to drink and to drink in excess
1: yeah absolutely and i think you know between the normalization of it the constant inundation of various pro alcohol messaging um and the really confusing muddled messages that we get about alcohol it's hard to know what's what and that is why I've made it my mission and it's this big part of my work to just show up and tell the truth about alcohol so that people, women in particular, have a little bit more information and they can then make an informed decision about what they're doing and what they're putting in their bodies Mm -hmm. because as it stands right now, that's really hard to do. And then it almost feels like a Uh, like an almost an issue of consent right like how can we consent to something when we don't actually have the information we don't really know what we're consenting to because the messaging is confusing and alcohol companies do they put a lot of effort into hiding the truth and hiding the messages um and the facts rather and so it becomes really tricky to know what's what
0: yeah and it's almost like a blatant like slap in the face sometimes like the pink yeah. washing that you talked about with the alcohol brand supporting i think it was like the international breast cancer awareness like month i did see that online and it was yeah. like one of the biggest spirit companies was one of the largest sponsors and it's kind of like fuck you guys <laughs> like
1: yeah super fuck you guys yeah super because yeah it's um it's so manipulative it is so um, yeah, it just, it's so harmful and it's all, all in the name of making some money off of our backs. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: that really pisses me off.
0: Yeah. The pinkwashing is it, I don't want to say shocking because like, I, I understand why they're doing it and like, I'm not surprised that they're doing it. But like the pink washing, the green, like we've heard greenwashing, these kind of like terms now to describe these brands that are just masking what they're doing to fit in on this trend. It's just like, how is that allowed?
1: Yeah, we have um really questionable, we'll say, policies around how alcohol companies can market, um, and you know, how they disclose information and and who they can be involved with. I would love to see policy changes that make that stuff harder, right? Because we know, we know that if we don't see marketing and if we're not influenced by marketing, we know that that would change things. If we weren't constantly Mm -hmm. told to drink and if it wasn't everywhere and so normal and so available, of course it would look very different. But we aren't really giving ourselves the opportunity for any of that because yeah so much needs to change
0: yeah and what do you think about kind of like niche alcohol brands like there's one by one of the housewives uh it's called like the skinny girl and they do like skinny girl margaritas skinny girl wines and that's a little more like in your face that like this is who we are targeting yeah
1: it um concerns me Uh, it really concerns me Mm. when I see especially you know, and again, I don't want to blame. I don't want to I don't want to fixate on the woman, right? i because I understand how she got there. I also understand that there can be this almost like, faux feminism attached to it, where it does feel empowering to go head to head with some male dominated brands. And like the, the alcohol industry is like really male dominant. So I can understand wanting, you know, from an equality of perspective, wanting to break into that and, you know, make waves or whatever. And it's a substance that we know is really harming women in a lot of ways specific to women. And Mm -hmm. so it, I find it bothersome. I find it harmful. um, And again, I can, I can understand how women got there. um, And I would love to sit down with all of them individually and just have a conversation about it. And you know, share some of what I've shared here, because I think, I wonder if it would be different if they had different insights into it and they had actual, you know, maybe more information on the actual harms that alcohol present.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It makes you wonder what information do they really have? So like, is it a choice or is it just a little bit of ignorance?
1: Yeah. Again, like we're all generally, I mean, the only reason that I know as much as I know is because I have committed hours and years to digging into it and really educating myself. And if we just look at things on the surface – Again, the information's not there. What information is there is really confusing and hard to understand and and tease apart. So, I get it and I also know not everybody's going to do a deep dive on mm-hmm. on the topic. And so, I I really do understand and I think it's less about the individuals and the choices that they're making and more about the systems and structures that keep us stuck where we are. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's a lot, right? It's a lot. Yeah, it is
0: a <laughs> lot. And it's like, it goes all the way to the top. It's it's crazy, really. But yeah. thank you for sharing all of that. Um, it, I feel like I'm in school. Like, I'm just like looking at you, like listening. <laughs> but it's been amazing. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on?
1: Um... I mean, we've covered a lot of ground. I don't want (laughs) to overwhelm (laughs) the listeners. Um, Maybe I'll just add if anyone is, you know, interested in talking about any of these things more, or they have questions Mm -hmm. for me. um, I'm pretty active on Instagram and you can find me there at Ms. Amy C. Willis. That's my handle. and I post, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff there. So if you were interested in poking around or if you're like, tell me more about alcohol and breast cancer, I can point you in the right direction because um, I, you know, spend mm-hmm. a lot of time with this stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I will tag your Instagram in the show notes. Um, I can also include your sobriety and mindset coaching website so people can find you easily. And Perfect. so just before we go, I like to ask this kind of like final question What's one thing you wish you knew about sobriety before you quit drinking?
1: Mm, I love that question. Um, I would say, I think just going back to what we kind of touched on earlier was just anything feels possible now in my life. Anything feels possible. I, I feel like If I can think it up in my head, I can make it happen. I can do it. I can go there. And that is probably the farthest thing from what I believed to be true pre-getting sober. Mm -hmm. I thought my life was over. I thought I would never have fun again. I thought I wouldn't have any friends. I wouldn't be able to connect. And... That that belief could not have been any more wrong and just, yeah, the, the possibility of, you know, sobriety and what sobriety makes possible in your life, which is literally anything.
0: I love it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time. This was such a powerful conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was so great. It was so great to chat with you and meet you.
0: Thank you. You too. This is Keisha signing off on another episode of Done With Debauchery. If you liked what you heard, please share and subscribe. You can also find me at donewithdebauchery.com or follow along on Instagram at donewithdebauchery. Thanks for listening.